0: Hello and welcome to the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, episode 161, Who Done It? Great Mystery Board Games. But the truth is, we're doing it. I'm Sean, and with me, the Tabletop Bellhop himself, Mo. I am Mo
1: Tuzano, the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge, answering your gaming and game night questions and striving to make everyone's gaming experience better.
0: Remember, we record live Wednesday nights at 9pm Eastern at twitch.tv/slash tabletopbellhop. Welcome. Thanks for joining us, especially those of you here live in our chat room tonight.
1: Thank you all for being here. Now, tonight we've got a question from one of our awesome Patreon patrons who's looking for mystery themed board games. Then I've got a review of Doodle Dungeon, and we wrap up with our usual weekend review where I've got first thoughts on Hero Quest, Aqualin, and Underwater Cities. Welcome to the suggestion box. Here we highlight some of our interactions with you fine folk. Up first, Demi
0: Yahoo commented on our topic of great RPGs you can play with a standard deck of playing cards to say, thank you for this video. This is one of a few videos on YouTube about RPG games that can be played with standard deck. Would you review other combat RPG games played with standard deck? For example, the great combat games at Paget.
1: Well, thanks for the comment, Dame, and for pointing out Paget. Uh, When I read this, I had no clue what Paget was, and I had to Google it. Now, what... Um, Dene is talking about is Pagat.com, P-A-G-A-T.com. This is a website that was created to house a list of all the games you can play with a standard deck of playing cards, as well as tile-laying games from around the world, with rules for most of them, so it also includes uses for Mahjong tiles. Now, while the site was created in 1995 and still looks like it was made in 1995, it is a fantastic resource for anyone looking for new card games to play. Now, as for reviewing some combat RPG games off that list, I I I love the concept, but I don't think this is something we're going to be able to do anytime soon. At least now, while we've got games in the pile of obligation and I've got my personal pile of shame, as high as it is, it seems kind of silly to play free games off the internet I can get when I have purchased games here to be played first. But I got to say, there's probably some great free-to-play games there. And if anyone has been to Paget and has recommendations for what to check out, that would be great to know too, because that site has a lot of games on it. And I was looking at popular ones and stuff like that. But if someone can say like, oh, I played this and it's awesome, there's more likely we'll check that out than picking random games off the site.
0: All right. And I dropped that link in our chat room. Next up, a comment on our This Didn't Happen preview. Mike uh, Emick and Mike on Board Game Geek commented over there to say thanks for the insightful and honest critique.
1: Oh, you're welcome, uh, Mike. We try our best to provide our opinions on these games we play while sharing as much info as possible about the games we can so that other people can make their own choice to check out a game or not. And it's always great when someone recognizes that. Now, I wanted to make sure we got this comment on the show tonight because This Didn't Happen it is live now on Kickstarter and it will be over by the time our next podcast goes live, so it's our last chance to give it a shout-out. Now, as of right now, they're over halfway to their funding goal, but they're not there yet, and I do encourage everyone to check this one out. There's links to both our written and YouTube reviews right there on the Kickstarter page, so if you search This Didn't Happen Kickstarter, you'll find it. So you can use those to see why I recommend this one, even though there are some flaws.
0: Well, next up a comment on our CanCon podcast episode where we pretend to go shopping at our FLGS with $50 in store credit, Dave Hutchinson, local Windsor gamer, and the person who sent in the question wrote to say, I like the podcast. Thanks. I watched it last year, but I finally took the time to use the gift card, dropped your name to them, that it was due to your recommendation that I was buying from their store. It has been more than two years since I walked in there. And I ended up with Flashpoint, ordered, as I remembered the fun we had playing it with you. Thank you for your help.
1: Well, thanks for getting back to us, Dave. Um, Would have liked to have seen the reaction when you name dropped me. I am glad you checked out the episode, and I think Flashpoint is a fantastic choice for you and your group.
0: Now, finally, a quick one from Chris Groff on our Galaxy Trucker review from two weeks ago. Great review! Thanks, Chris. Well, that's it for this week's comments. Then send your feedback to Mo at tabletopbellhop.com or hit us up on social media. We're here to answer your game, gaming your game night questions. Tonight's question comes from patron of the show, Brian Kurtz, who writes, You've had a lot of columns and podcasts to deal with certain types of games. Gateway games, co-op games, games you can travel with, games with certain mechanics, etc. But I'm not recalling you specifically grouping games thematically. Okay. And my question is about that. We all played Clue when we were younger. What are some mystery themed games that are actually good?
1: All right, thanks for the question, Brian, and of course for supporting our show since the very beginning. Brian was actually our first ever Patreon patron, and greatly appreciated. So one thing I do want to point out, I don't think Brian was trying to cut up Clue there. Because just the way it's worded, is like, but that are actually good. Actually, I think Clue of all the mass market games is a pretty solid game that even gamers can enjoy. Now, the other thing I do need to say is he's right. Uh, we have not talked about mystery themed games. And actually, I don't think we have done really theme based podcasts before. Like we've never done a, a Mars show and talked about the top 10 Mars games. Though obviously I, I don't even know if there's 10 I played or we haven't talked about underwater themed games. Though I think, did we do sci-fi space? I don't even think we've done that. So like our top no, sci-fi I mean, space games. Th-
0: there is always the complaint that we don't de- delve into theme, even in our reviews yes. well enough. <laughs> That's so, <true>. you know,
1: <laughs> we've gotten better at that. I now include right in the top section, just after I tell you who made the game, I give you an overview of the theme of the game and what it's about. So I have improved on that. You can tell I am a mechanics person, not a theme person. So anyway, good call on that. We have not talked about this. The thing is. The problem, and that's in quotes, is that I'm not a huge mystery theme fan. While I have played some mystery theme games, and I'm a fan of some of those ones I played, and I do have to say that's a subset, uh, it's just not something I'm huge into. Uh, Clue wasn't a game that I got into growing up. Though, again, it is one that I do now enjoy as an adult, but it was Deanna that introduced me to Clue, really. I did, like, I, I remember trying it as a kid, but not liking it. Now, what about you, Sean? Do you, Do any mystery gaming?
0: Uh, Now, I admit, as a kid, we actually played Clue quite a bit as a family. Uh, But while I enjoy deduction and logic games, the mystery aspect Hmm. is something that just doesn't do it for me.
1: Fair enough. So due to our lack of experience with this theme, uh, we're going to... You're going to have to give me a bit of a leeway on our list tonight. So normally I try to stick to games I own or have at least played and then maybe have two or three honorable mentions that are games I haven't played. Well, tonight what I am going to do so the list isn't too short is include some of the most popular mystery-themed games based on places like Board Game Geek and other gaming media and other reviewers and other top 10, top 20 lists, Dice Tower, stuff like that. So we did our research to find what seems to be the most popular mystery games out there.
0: It's tough to find a topic neither of us is especially up on. That's but true. we can't be on as experts at every genre.
1: So before we do dive into our game recommendations, I thought it's worth taking a little bit to talk about what we mean by mystery games, just so we don't have people saying that is a mystery game, that isn't a mystery game, at least for us. So first thing I did is I went and looked for a mystery category on Board Game Geek, and they don't have mystery as its own. What they do have is murder mystery which is what I used to search for popular games.
0: So board game, Oh, sorry. (laughs) So board game geek says murder mystery games often involve an unsolved murder or murders. A requirement of these games is usually for players to investigate these crimes and determine the criminal details and or perpetrators.
1: While it fits for murder games, that doesn't really tell you what types of games could be considered mystery games. Like, I don't think every mystery game has to be about a murder. For example, Outfoxed is a mystery game that my kids owned and loved, and it's a fantastic deduction game, but the mystery is which fox stole a pie. Now, Board Game Geek also has a separate category for deduction games, because once I saw that, I was like, well, maybe I'm looking for deduction games, not mystery games. And while that actually has a much more involved description.
0: So deduction games are those that require players to form conclusions based on available premises. These games are quite varied, including several different types of logical reasoning. Cat and mouse games like Scotland Yard Hmm. are a type of deduction game in which players use a set of observations and truthful feedback to narrow down possibilities and catch a constantly moving opponent at the right position. Hmm. Elimination games, like Clue, expect players to arrive at the right conclusion after narrowing down possibilities from a large list. Signaling games, like Werewolf, allow for a set of observations and player-driven feedback, which may not be truthful, Mm. to arrive at the right conclusion out of two or three main choices. Now, finally, this category includes induction games like Zendo, in which players must derive a general rule out of near infinite possibilities.
1: Wow, does that ever feel like a Board Game Geek entry where multiple people have gone in and edited it and added their favorite games? I, I, this, uh, it actually goes on. So that's only part of this. Um, there's another two paragraphs about social deduction games. And while I think we're going to skip over that subset of mystery games because I think everyone knows my thoughts on those type of games.
0: Indeed, while you can consider some of the mysteries, it's just not something we here appreciate enough to really give a fair review yeah, of.
1: Yeah, you won't, you won't, you you could, we could possibly do like the top five social deduction games Mo actually enjoys. That's that's probably about as deep as it goes. So, uh, I don't know, there's a lot of stuff there that I don't know if it's a mystery. Scotland Yard, you're chasing someone around a board trying to find them. What are you solving? What's the mystery? The mystery is where are they? But they're moving every turn. Ah, uh, It's so... And, and clue is an elimination game i 'm like isn't that deduction is eliminating things till you have one left isn't that what deduction means? I wonder why they called it elimination instead of just deduction and uh Zendo. Pfft. I guess it's a, it's a uh, ice house game, which if you know what ice house is, it's, you get a bunch of pieces and you're putting them on the board based on a rule, like all yellow po- pieces must point to blue and blah, blah, blah. And people keep making patterns. They're like, nope, that doesn't fit the rule. And it's kind of like, um, mastermind. Right. And I'm like i, I that one I, of all of them. Yeah. I guess that's a mystery, right? Like what's the rule. So that one I can see, but like, I, I'm I just, there's an overlap here, right? What's the difference between a mystery game and a deduction game? And I honestly I wish Brian was with us with us in the chat room. I was hoping that we'd get him out by uh, tagging him on our Discord but it didn't work tonight. I'm sure he's busy he's doing whatever hanging out with his kids which is fine, but I would like to know what he thinks is a mystery game before we recommended stuff. This board game geek obviously thinks there's a difference. Not just in those definitions we read out, but in what games are listed in each category. So the top 3 mystery games on Board Game Geek are Mansion's of Madness second edition, Sherlock Holmes Consulting the Detective and Detective of Modern Crime board game. The deduction list though is Battlestar Galactica, Decrypto, and Codenames. And those other games aren't even on the list. So based on the game list at BGG, I gotta, we have to use the, I think the Murder Mystery version, as the games on that list is what enters my mind when you say mystery. And while Battlestar Galactica, I don't know how much of a mystery that one is, and Codenames, there's no mystery there.
0: Although I think you can certainly argue for Battlestar Galacta as it's a mystery who the Cylon is. At-
1: I admit, when I first read it, that's what I thought. But the game's not actually about finding out who the Cylon is. What the game is about is the humans trying to get to Earth over so many turns and dealing with all kinds of problems, and the Cylon's trying to stop that from happening. Because you can play a six-hour game of Battlestar Galactica where in the first ten minutes, someone guesses the Cylon and is proved correct because of a, a card. So you, you've solved the mystery already, but you still get to keep playing. So maybe, I think, the end result of the game Is you answer a question. The mystery is solved at the finish as opposed to it has a mystery in it.
0: In fact, one definition of the word mystery is something that is difficult or impossible to understand or explain. So explaining it or trying to would be the game, a, a question, a problem, or any unknown.
1: All right. I think that's about probably about as close as we're going to get to a firm definition. Like anytime we start talking about definitions, obviously it's up to interpretation. But I think the main thing is we need something we need to solve. In the end, you're trying to find a person or a reason or a thing or both, right? Uh, especially with burners, that's usually who did it and why did they do it? Or how did they do it? But going back to clue. So we're looking for something where the end result is you have you have to explain the mystery. You have to explain the process. So let's go down to make some game suggestions, and I'm sure we'll get some feedback on these, so my inbox is ready, mo at tabletopbellhop.com, though I'd love it even better if you comment on social media, because that appeases the algorithm. So as usual, these games are in no particular list, except I did put them in a couple buckets, uh, but like the, the numbered order doesn't matter here. Now these are games I personally have played and really enjoyed. Starting with my first game on the list is Hidden Games Crime Scene Case Number 1, the Canadian version of which is called the Maplebrook Case but it is localized for 11 different countries. So this was the game that popped into my head when I first read this question for Brian. When I was trying to decide what to talk about, I'm like, "Oh, it's got to be Crime Scene. Like that's definitely a murder mystery." This is one of many of the open case style mystery games where there's an unsolved case out there. Uh, there's a number of these games that are based on actual unsolved cases. Um, then there's ones with made up cases. This was made up. This is where you either either you pick up the game in this particular case, they mail something to your house, or you go buy the envelope at the at your local game store, and you open it up and you get all the evidence to solve the case. Now, another example of this would be Escape Mail, which is one of the ones I tried out and have reviewed over on the blog, and many of the mystery boxes that you can get sent every month, like Cratejoy, which we do have an affiliate for Cratejoy to be um, fully uh, opaque, or opaque, sorry, clear, fully clear here. Um, There are a ton on Escape Mail. Like, if you are interested in trying out these kind of games, uh, sorry, on Cratejoy, let me know, and I'll get you an affiliate link to check out the Cratejoy stuff. Now, all of the different ones we've tried, the Hidden Games Crime Scene series, which comes out of Germany, was the most enjoyable and rewarding.
0: And that was the Hidden Games Crime Scene, starting with case number one in Canada, in Canada. the Maplebrook case.
1: Next, I have Scooby-Doo Escape from the Haunted Mansion, a Coded Chronicles game. Now, every Scooby-Doo story, the goal, the end result is to solve the mystery, and unmask the villain. And in this escape room in a box style game is no exception. That's exactly what you're doing. Now, this uses the Coded chronicle system from Jay and Sen that involves using different characters to interact with different things that generates you a four-digit number that you look up in a book. Now, of the Coded chronicle games we played, this one is so far the best. We had a fantastic experience with the whole family on this one. This is actually my kids' favorite game they've ever played with us. Now, sadly, the Shining version that came out after wasn't nearly as good, and you can read our review to find out why. Now, what I'm really looking forward to is we've got a copy of the Goonies one on its way that should show up any day.
0: And that was Scooby-Doo Escape from the Haunted Mansion, a Coded Chronicles game.
1: Next, we're going to stick to the word Chronicles, I guess, is Chronicles of Crime 1400. Now, we had the pleasure of getting to preview this one when it was uh, live on Kickstarter, and I was extremely impressed. Now, this is an app integrated game, and the app is integral to this. It's it's mostly app with some cards that made brilliant use of QR codes and cards and a bit of AR to let you th- go through a series of medieval mysteries, which, of course, included some murders. Now, there is of course, a number of games in the series, starting with the original Chronicles of Crime. The next one was Chronicles of Crime Noir. And then there was the Millennium series. That's what 1400 is part of. Now, I haven't personally gone back and played any of the originals, but I have heard from fans of the series that each new set has improved on the others. That noir is way better than the original and the Millennium series is even more better than noir. So I don't know if you should go all the way back to the roots of this series, but I do strongly suggest checking out the Millennium series of Chronicles of Crime games games.
0: And that was Chronicles of Crime 1400.
1: Next, I have Mysterium. This is a very unique game where there has been a murder and one player takes on the role of a ghost trying to help the other players solve that murder. And I think you're playing the murdered victim. I've never actually read the rules for this game. I've only played it. Now, this game uses Dixit style cards, which are, are tarot sized cards with whimsical abstract artwork. And these are the only tools the ghost has to give the other players clues. Now, my issue with this one is this game seems to be very group-dependent, and I played in a great game, and I played in a not-so-great one, and the problem was the players, and a lot of it has to do where it seems like every group that owns this has their own house rules for what is and isn't allowed, and that way it reminds me of Hanabi, where when you play with one group, they like will put cards on top of others to block parts off, or they'll tap certain parts of the cards as the ghost, and so on. Overall... It does have a very unique system and can be enjoyable with the right group of players. And personally, I think if you stick to the, the core rules, which is just you put a card on the table and say nothing and sit back and like cross your arms and try not to react, it's more enjoyable that way. Other groups are going to play it differently. Now, what I haven't tried personally is Mysterium Park. This is the latest reimplementation of Mysterium, which reviewers seem to be enjoying more than the original. When I looked at it today, the board game geek ratings were the same. I couldn't tell you which one's better, but if you are thinking of digging into these, you might want to look into both. Mysterium Bark is definitely the, more, the most recently released. And that was Mysterium. Next, I have Tragedy Looper. Now, this is such an odd game that it's hard to describe, but it's all about figuring out what tragedy is about to happen and taking steps to prevent it. Note: not all the tragedies are someone dies. Now, an odd aspect of this game is that it's one versus Medini, but competitive. One player is trying to make sure the tragedy happens, whereas the other players are trying to prevent it. And the neat bit is the players that are trying to prevent it start playing the game, and then the tragedy happens, and then they restart from the beginning. And that's the loop part, right? It's a time travel game. This is in a way that the players then get to try again and then try different things to see what happens. And there's two parts of the mystery here, because first, you have to figure out what the tragedy is, and then second, you have to figure out what steps you have to take to prevent it. Now, this game does have a pretty steep learning curve due to the strangeness of the mechanics, so I only recommend this one for experienced gamers. This should not be a gateway game. This shouldn't be your first uh, mystery experience or your first time travel game.
0: I have to say... Tragedy Looper really sounds like the name of, of so, like a nickname you've given a game mm. that just, it's, it's a horrible game and it just keeps going over and over again. It sounds more like a bad nickname for a game than a real name for an actual mystery game. Tragedy Looper.
1: Totally fair. It's, 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 it's Misery Farm where you have to play multiple games of Agricola in a row and it just keeps steamrolling. Totally get it. All right. Next is Android. So here I go recommending a game that no one's going to be able to find or get, but it is worth trying to hunt down Android if you want a very cool mystery board gaming experience that's different from anything else i played. Now, this is a game set in Fantasy Flight's Android world, right? From Android, Netrunner, and some of their other games. It's a very popular world. There's even novels out there about the Android world. And in this game, you are, in, in my opinion, playing Blade Runner. You are playing through a Philip K. Dick story. You are in sci-fi, you're on a planet, there's a space elevator that goes up to the colonies in space, you've got your own hover car, and you are traveling around trying to solve a murder in this setting. Now, this involves deduction, there's puzzle solving, including actual physical puzzles you put together and put pieces together different ways to connect things. There's a really unique mechanic in this game where the murderer is not determined at the start of the game. It's determined during play by putting different targets on people and stuff. Like this is a wonky, long game that has a ton going on, but is super thematic and cool. Because the other thing is this is noir. And of course, your investigator has personal issues. And dealing with your personal issues is a big part of the game and how much you focus on your own wellness versus all of this tossed into it, right? The problem is it's a game length, issue. It's a very long hard to learn game, and one of the things I found people hated about this game is that it's possible that your potential suspect, the one you want to be is killed off early in the game. So your goal at the beginning can't possibly happen. But what you don't realize, the people who don't like this is that it's not just about solving the case cuz this is actually also a euro and it's about earning points in the way along the way. So you can actually win the game without solving the murder. I honestly think like I unfortunately I sold this because people who hated it were people in my regular game group and they swore they'd never play it again. And now I miss it. This is this is one of my biggest shames that I got rid of a game and I should have kept it. Like the different cars you drove. The one the one character had a garbage car so it moved for less and you moved your car with a protractor around the map, and then um, the highland car had a bigger arc. Like there was just so much going on in this game. So if you can find it, I think it's worth picking it up.
0: And that was Android, if you can find it.
1: <laughs> and that's it. Um, that's all I've got for the top mystery games I personally have played and enjoyed. So now for the rest of the list, what we're going to do is talk about some of the best mystery game recommendations I could find while doing research for this topic. So number one is Sherlock Holmes consulting detective, specifically the team's murder and other cases. Now, besides being the top of almost every best mystery game list I looked at, this one has also been personally recommended by, to me by local gamer and Bellhop patron Jeff Seuss. And Jeff and I seem to share pretty similar tastes when it comes to board games and RPGs and the type of stories we like to tell at the table. Now, Board Game Geek does seem to back this up. This is the number two rated mystery game on the site, and it's just just missing the top 100 board games. When I looked earlier, it was at 109. The neat bit that appeals to me in this game is the multiple, it's like eight cases, so a significant number of cases. And at the end, you get a score and you can rank yourself versus Holmes and see what you missed and what Holmes caught and what. What 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 gaps of logic you had, and what leaps of faith Sherlock supposedly was able to make, and no no one out there is going to beat Sherlock. And if anyone claims they did, I, I don't know. I, that's that reminds me of people who tell me they played Power Grid with their six year old. While it may be true and good on you, I I gotta admit I doubt it.
0: And if you think you are much as skilled as the great one himself, that is Sherlock Holmes, consulting detective. Next, I have
1: Mythos Tales, which, just to make the fans of the Brawling Brothers Goard Game podcast happy, the Mythos Tales. As expected from the name, this is based on the works of H.P. Lovecraft and has players take on the role of investigators in 1920s Arkham. It includes eight different cases for the players to try to solve. Now this I put next because similar to Consulting Detective, you end up comparing your final score to Armitage and Armitage is a famous investigator in many of Lovecraft's books. Um, you see how you rank up against this famous mythos detective. Now, I gotta say, not being a big Lovecraft fan, I never gave this game a second look. If I see a Cthulhu theme, I literally don't even dig any deeper than that. I had no clue that this was like a mystery you can solve eight different cases. And I gotta admit, I'm tempted. Because solving mythos cases sounds way cooler to me than solving real life-based crimes. I have, I I play board games to escape. I don't want to solve a murder at the local fair. I would much rather find out who was the cultist than I would, or who's trying to summon a demon in their
0: basement. (laughs) And if you want to uh, leave reality for your mysteries, that was Mythos Tales or Mythos Tales. Yes. (laughs)
1: Every time they said Mythos Tales, and it was like this high-pitched, drove me nuts. Next, I have Paranormal Detectives. This is the newest game on this list, came out in the middle of the pandemic, so I think this probably would have had a lot more buzz had it come out during con season. So this seems to be the next step from Mysterium to me, and I probably should check, maybe it's even the same designer, because it does sound very similar, so again... There's been a murder. One player is playing the ghost. All the other players, though, are investigators. But this time, they're paranormal investigators. They are using their powers to question the ghost. And the ghost is limited in how they can answer. So instead of just Mysterium, you play a card. They have all kinds of different things they can do, including playing a card. Tarot-sized cards, similar. They can create word puzzles They can touch the detectives, which no not something you want to do during a pandemic. Specifically, and I like this one, you can have a detective pick up a pencil, and then you guide their arm to draw something. That sounds really cool. And then there's also a Ouija board, where they can use the Ouija board to send things. Like There are actually nine different ways the ghosts can communicate, and none of them, of course, are talking. Now, this sounds interesting. I really want to try this one once it's safe to play games and interact and actually touch each other while we're playing games. This sounds really cool. This sounds awesome compared to Mysterium. This sounds like taking it to that next level.
0: And that was Paranormal Detectives, which doesn't, in fact, share a designer. Oh,
1: okay. I, it just seems like the logical next step. It's I'm showing them cards. and like, well, how about instead of cards, you can do this or you can hum a song. Or I didn't look up at all the nine different ones. I looked up at some of them more. All right, next, I have my final game on the list tonight. This is one I know someone in our chat room is a fan of, and that is Detective, a modern crime board game. Now, I saw this game on every single mystery game list out there. Sometimes taking the highest spot, usually it was in there, in the mix, and it was there everywhere. Like, every time I looked at a list, it was in there somewhere. Seeing the number of awards it was nominated for which is a huge list with four wins, makes me think this is a solid recommendation without having to try it myself. Now, as you can guess from the title, this is about using modern resources to solve modern day crimes, which I get again, that's what kept me away. I, again, I want escapism. I don't want to solve modern crimes. I don't want to think about what could happen in real life. Now, what this really involves is a lot of tech, You get access to a database that that they've set up and you go on the web and you can look stuff up and there's email addresses you can email that'll email you back. Like this is using modern technology to present a modern crime board game. Now, what it looks like is there was a 2020 reprint of this game called the Game of the Year Edition. This seems to be the one you want to seek out if you want to play modern or detective a modern crime board game.
0: All right, there you go. So if you like the... Modern, current, state-of-the-art, that is Detective, a modern crime board game.
1: All right. I do have three honorable mentions, uh, including a mix of games I played in, ones I've read about or know about. Okay. Number one is Mansions of Madness. This is the number one mystery game on Board Game Geek. It was also on many top lists, often taking the top spot, but this one does not feel like a my- mystery to me at all. Like it's an app trapping game, and yes, you start in the middle of a house and you don't know what to do. So there's a mystery there. You're like, I don't know why I'm here or what I'm doing. But like, stop the cultists before they summon a thing. And if you don't, you have to fight it. Doesn't feel like a mystery at all. Like like I, there's mysteries there, and there are things you have to figure out. But it's almost more of a miniature game, remembering you check all the places to get the right tools to fight the thing and then win the die rolls. Like, I have a real hard time recommending this as a mystery game. That said, there is deduction elements, there are puzzle elements, and it's a fantastic game and one of the best app integrated games I've played. But I just, to me, it doesn't seem like a mystery to me.
0: Fair enough. And that was Mansions of Madness.
1: Next, I have Deception Murder in Hong Kong. This is a high player count, hidden trader board game for up to 12 players that plays in about 20 minutes, thus making it completely different from every other game on this list. And I think in a way for a good reason. Uh, now, one player takes on the role of the forensic scientist. They know the answer to the murder, but they can only express clues to the players through the use of these scene cards or tiles, where they're putting things out and things on them. Now, another player is the killer, who tries to hide their role, but they're mixed in with the rest of the players. You don't know who the killer is. And then, as you add other player counts, there's also, like, the witness and the accomplish and so on. So, you definitely got some werewolf vibes going on here. Now, I played this one. And it's a good, quick, big group party game, but it's all social deduction. It's trying to figure out who that murderer is, and it greatly relies on the skill of the forensic scientist to pass across information. It wasn't to my taste. And again, I don't know if I consider this a mystery. Like, there's a murder, but it's all about social deduction and sussing out who the killer is, not figuring out their motive or the weapon or any of that stuff. I know To me, it's a social deduction game, not a mystery game.
0: Uh, I think a lot of people would consider that a mystery game, I have to say. Uh, It's just that it's a social deduction game, so not really our cup of tea. I definitely not. But that was Deception Murder in Hong Kong.
1: Finally, number 13, because I thought that was a good number for a murder mystery night game recommendation episode. I have letters from Whitechapel. This is the Scotland Yard from above, but modernized, right? This is a one versus many board game set in London, 1888. One player is playing Jack the Ripper, trying to take five victims before being caught by the other players playing the police. While I found this on many murder mystery game lists, it doesn't seem like a mystery to me at all. You know who the villain is. It's Jack. You know what they're trying to do and how to do it. They're trying to kill five people. The game is about stopping that from happening. So I I personally wouldn't count this. But again, this was on all kinds of other people's top mystery game lists. I think maybe if it's a murder mystery game list, they just went with that murder part of it and ignored the mystery part.
0: Yeah. It's, it's a very tough one and it's a tough line. I mean, arguably police solving crimes could be considered mystery, even if they know who it is. The fact that they haven't got enough information to solve it yet could be considered that. But depending on uh, your point of view, You could try Letters from Whitechapel.
1: Now, Letters from Whitechapel, I do want to call out, there is an updated version that has been released. It has a bit better board game geek rating, and it is called Whitehall Mystery. So if you are interested in checking out Letters from Whitechapel and trying to catch Jack or escape as Jack, check out Whitehall Mystery.
0: Well, that's it for our list of mystery-themed board game suggestions.
1: We're here to answer your Gaming and Game Night questions. If you've got a question for us, head over to the website and click on Ask the Bellhop or email questions at tabletopbellhop.com.
0: Welcome to our review of a Flip and right Reverse Dungeon Crawl Board Game Doodle Dungeon. Thanks Pegasus Spiel for sending us a review copy of this game to check out.
1: Doodle Dungeon was designed by Ulrich Blum and features the fantastic artwork of John Kowalik, best known for his Dork Tower comic and work on the Munchkin card games. This is a flip and write game for two to four players, with games taking at least an hour. Now, my copy of Doodle Dungeon comes from Pegasus Feel, who published it in 2020. This game features a very reasonable MSRP of $29.99 U.S., In Doodle Dungeon,
0: players become owners of a brand new dungeon. A dungeon that happens to be empty and which needs to be filled up with things like walls, monsters, traps, and treasures. Players draft cards to add features to their dungeons, as well as building up their arsenal for when the heroes attack. The path these heroes take is determined by your opponents. So you'd better be clever when building. Once the hero's paths are set, you play through a series of encounters, finding out how well the heroes fare. Will your monsters and traps defeat the invader or will they get away with their lives and your precious treasure? For a look at what you get with a copy of Doodle Dungeon, check out our unboxing video on YouTube.
1: So Doodle Dungeon comes in a surprisingly large box, much bigger than I expected when first looking at the game online, right? I purchased a lot of games online, and when doing research, I just expected a small, tiny, portable box, and it is not. Now, this box features a significantly large player sheet, and that's what takes up all the room. It's what you're going to be drawing on, and there was a thick pad of these. I did not count how many are in there, but there's probably at least 100, if not two or 300. Now, this Map sheet or player board or player sheet. I don't know what you call them in a flip and write. I, They're not really boards. Their player sheet features a significantly large grid with lots of room in each square. And the reason for that is so you can draw the various dungeon features. Now, above that is an area for tracking upgrades you've done to your dungeon. Now, the rules are very clear and concise, feature a great summary of play on the back. You also get something they call the dooble, which is supposedly a legal document telling you the dungeon building rules, which just details the drawing restrictions. Game also comes with hero meeples, 2D10, sorry, 10-sided dice, 4 10-sided dice, a deck of cards to draft from a score sheet pad, also used for hiding treasure, pencils, an eraser, uh, and a start player pencil sharpener one thing i totally didn't expect was also a scent of stencils that you can use while doing the drawing part of the game now i have no complaints about any of the components here and i do appreciate when a writing based game comes with everything you need including sharpeners and an eraser
0: we always applaud games that provide those tools when needed in a game and the fact that the sharpener is also the first player token is just icing on the cake agreed Well, now that we have an idea of what you get in the box, how about you give us an overview of how to play Doodle Dungeon?
1: Okay, so a game of Doodle Dungeon is played over three phases. The first phase, everyone draws their dungeon, which is done by drafting cards, then drawing the features on the bottom of the cards onto your dungeon sheet. Now note, these same cards are also going to be used later when trying to defend your dungeon. So watching what a card does, as well as what features are on it, is a big part of the strategy in this game. Now, dungeon features include walls, monsters, which come in three types, goblins, orcs, and dragons, traps, treasure, and dungeon upgrades. Each of these have their own placement rules, like you can't cut off an area of the map with your walls, and the fact traps and monsters can't be orthogonally next to each other. Now, treasures are hidden in your dungeon. Instead of drawing them, you write down where they are on your score sheet. Now, each treasure needs to be guarded by a monster or it's lost even before the heroes show up. Though, you can place a treasure on your map with plans to put a monster there later. You don't have to have one before the other. Now, dungeon upgrades are tracked at the top of your sheet and include leveling up the various monster types, making your traps more deadly, improving your treasure's value, and increasing your hand size for the final phase.
0: So everything except the cards is right there on your sheet? Yes, it is.
1: And while well, the double, in case you forget the rules, can't forget the double. That's an important document. Now the next phase has you passing your dungeon to the player on your left. Then everyone is going to draw the route the hero will follow through that dungeon. You start at the entrance and you draw a path which eventually leads to the exit. Now, while drawing this path, there are a few rules, like you can't move over the same enemy twice in a row, you have to hit a trap or something else first, and you can't enter an individual square on the map more than twice, and this is a very important rule to remember when drawing your dungeon in the first phase. While it can be tempting to just draw the most direct path from the start to the finish, dodging all the monsters if you can, each monster you kill and treasure you find removes points from your opponent, so you want to get as much as you can.
0: So what stops the heroes from looking at that information recorded at the top of your sheet to see what you've done?
1: So nothing. Um, all the information about the dungeon is public knowledge. And using that knowledge is key to drawing a good path. You know what level the monsters are, you know how much the treasure is worth, you know how much damage those traps are gonna do. The only thing you don't know is where the treasure actually is on the map, but you do know how many treasure
0: chests there are. So the use of the cards is the only real unknown then. Yeah.
1: Now, in the final phase, everyone gets their dungeon back, and you take turns running the heroes through the dungeons. On a player's turn, they're just going to take the meeple and trace it to the next feature on the map, then play through that encounter, and then play passes to the next player, and you keep going around. Now, most encounters are going to be battles between the heroes and the three monster types. Now, battles are resolved by rolling 2d10 and adding the number to the strength of that monster, which is part one of those upgrades, and that's set during the drawing phase. You're hoping to get a total of 20 or more which case you will damage the hero. Now, the actual amount of damage done to the hero is set by the monster type. Goblins only do one damage, dragons do three. Similarly, there are different stats for things. So goblins start at plus zero, whereas dragons start at plus four on those dice rolls.
0: So remember, you're the dungeon owner here, or, here, or owner here. So this is uh, this so-called hero is an invader on your turf, a trespasser. So don't feel bad for roughing them up. Very true. Now, after rolling, if you haven't
1: hit 20 or better, you have the option to play cards from your hand, which is something that you draw them at the start of your phase, and the number of cards is based on your upgrades. Now, these cards include all kinds of fun things like weapons, bombs, potions, and more that can modify or let you re-roll dice. This is your main die roll um, mitigation, your randomness mitigation in the game. Now, after any modifications, if you still don't have 20, the hero defeats the monster, and they're crossed off on the map.
0: Sadly, these are well-trained and equipped trespassers, so it's not always easy to send them packing.
1: Now, in addition to buffing the stuff in your own dungeon, there are also cards that can buff the heroes in opponents' dungeons. You can play these on your turn, and they'll affect the opponent on their next turn. Now, to keep things fair and to stop players from ganging up on someone, each player can only have two of these cards in front of them at any one time. Now, instead of requiring a die roll... Traps just do set damage based on how much they've been upgraded. Once a trap's triggered once, it's crossed off. Now, if you manage to defeat the hero invading your dungeon, they have a health track at the bottom of your sheet. You stop having encounters, but your turn still happens and you can still play those hero buff cards if you have them. Now, the same goes if your hero escapes. You still get to take your turn every turn until all heroes have either been defeated or
0: escaped. So you can buff any hero in any dungeon. Though, of course, you wouldn't want to buff the hero in your dungeon.
1: (laughs) Technically, I think that'd be against the rules. But yeah, there is absolutely no reason to buff up your own hero. Now, at the end of the game, you just tally up your scores. Everyone's going to get points for what monsters they have left, based on the type. Goblins are worth the least points, dragons are worth the most. You're also going to get points for every treasure that's still guarded in your dungeon. Again, the value is set by how much you've improved them and the, the upgrading phase. Now, five bonus points are awarded for anyone who manages to defeat their invading hero, and players who the hero escape lose points equal to the amount of hit points the hero still has left.
0: Player with most points wins. So now that we've got an overview of how to play Doodle Dungeon, what did you think of the game overall?
1: All right, I got to start by saying I love the theme of this game. I am a huge fan of the reverse dungeon crawl theme, which I first experienced through the PC game Dungeon Keeper. This is the, the theme where you're playing basically the bad guy building the dungeon and trying to defend it from invading heroes. One of my all-time favorite board games, Dungeon Lords, is a great heavy Euro with this theme. And at the opposite end of the scale, I also really dig Boss Monster, which is a nice quick filler game that shares this theme. This is why I jumped at the chance to check out Doodle Dungeon when the offer came up.
0: Though I think calling the players villains or bad folk is a bit strong. They're just defending their property and items from an invasion. What's wrong with that?
1: Oh, nothing at all. Nothing at all. There's no evilness going in in any of these dungeons whatsoever. We're just peaceful overlords. So... What I can't help do, but is compare Doodle Dungeon to these other games, right? These are games in my collection that I really dig. And while I got to say, it's like the three bears, because it's somewhere right in the middle between Boss Monster, the light filler game and Dungeon Lords, the heavy euro. And I got to say, I dig it. That said, it did surprise me in, in some major ways. Because with this silly theme, the John Kovalic art, I expected this to be a light filler game. I expected a different boss monster, something different. A boss monster rolling right, right? I expected rapid card play and lots of take that. And that's not what we have. Instead, we have a game that's actually closer to Dungeon Lords. This is a longer game with a lot of strategic elements and very difficult decisions on the part of the players. Which leads me to the biggest issue I see with this game, and that's people having the wrong expectation. Like I know I did, and I worry other people will as well. Personally, when I hear flip right," I don't expect a medium light game with an hour plus playing time.
0: Even the name Doodle sort of gives a light, relaxing sort mm-hmm. of feel. And while the playtime is listed on the box, I think the overall feel of the design can easily make people overlook that. Totally
1: agree. Now, now that I know what to expect when sitting down to play Doodle Dungeon. Because that first game, when we sat down with Kat, Tori, and Diana, we were a little surprised. I actually was like, here, we're going to dive in, and I'm not going to teach the rules, because we're going to play two or three times in a row. Well, that didn't happen. But now that I know, and I can set that expectation, that, hey, this is a longer game. You're going to play 14 rounds of drawing, and then you're going to do this and do this. It's going to take like an hour. I have had some really enjoyable game nights playing this reverse dungeon crawler. Now, the rules are very concise and very well designed. Though I gotta say, it takes a player or two to learn how you should be drawing your dungeon versus how you can. This is a huge strategic element of the game. The things you choose, your first card draft, is going to affect everything going forward. Because your card is not only being used for drawing, you're also using it to defend your dungeon later. And there are lots of different strategies you can try. Like, you get 14 rounds to draw. That gives you plenty of time and features to add. And lots of chances to pivot your strategy tactically if the cards aren't coming up or if you notice someone else is taking a lot of a certain type of card. And I got to say, every time I played now, there's always someone who doesn't like taking walls at the beginning and spends the last few rounds going, please give me walls, please give me walls.
0: All in all, this is a much more nuanced and thoughtful game. Don't let the silly artwork fool you. totally agree.
1: Now, I particularly love the element of this game where the cards you draft become your defense deck. That is just really neat. That's just in a a way brilliant because this is something so easy to overlook your first couple games, but can become a big part of your strategy. Grabbing a card with stuff you may not really want to draw because you really want that bomb or that cursed card or that dragon's breath is pretty standard in this game, trying to decide what to grab. Similarly, knowing the path drawing rules can really impact how you draw your dungeon. The key rule being the one I mentioned before, where you can only enter each square twice. You can use that to your advantage to present your opponents with difficult path choices, possibly cutting off large sections of your dungeon and keeping those valuable treasures protected.
0: I believe once you nailed that particular rule about path generation, your wife spoke out rather vocally about your success in implementing it. Yes, cross-shaped
1: patterns are good is the only hint I will give. Remember, you can only enter a square twice. Now, one of the aspects that makes this game so long to play, though, is the drawing part. Not everyone draws with the same level of skill, or more importantly, in this case, speed. And I've got to say, I really appreciate the stencils. They can really speed things up. Drawing a goblin with that stencil is way quicker than trying to draw an orb and ears and face on it. The problem is convincing people to actually use the stencils. Now, I have to admit, while waiting for other players to finish drawing, I've often wondered how much quicker the game would be if we just use symbols or letters like shade in a wall quickly, put a T for a trap, a G for a goblin. I'm certain this would speed things up, but then it removes the drawing fun and you pretty much throw away the whole dungeon theme.
0: It's a tricky balance to fit in that time versus decoration balance. Uh, After all, roguelike dungeons got their start using just ASCII, but the artist's style is a real part of this game. You don't have this game without uh, Kovalik's Uh, Style.
1: Oh, totally agree. Now, after my first couple plays, I found it fascinating how much thought you have to put in the path drawing phase. Like, that is not just a quick, simple draw a path, hit all the monsters, or run right to the exit. Like, you need to look at how the player laid out the dungeon. Think about where your opponent's likely to put treasure. Look at their upgrades. That is big. If you notice, they haven't upgraded those dra- those goblins. You might want to try to hit everyone. Goblins only hit on a double 10 without buffs. Um, You basically need to do a risk assessment, right? How many monsters do you think I can hit? Like, should I sit there and kill everything I can? Should I do the math? Like, I have 20 hit points. If every- everything hits me, I'm only going to take 19 damage max. I'm perfectly safe. Or do you push it? And go, well, I'm going to, the goblins will probably die. Like that's a part of this game. And like risk assessment is something I talk about at work. It's not something I usually think about in my board games.
0: Now, as with any dungeon crawl, the dice will impact your success or failure.
1: Yeah, that is the one thing I think some gamers aren't going to like and others are going to love, the random element the dice add to this game. Now, I will say I do greatly appreciate it's two dice. So you do have a bell curve there. You're not just doing a linear thing. It could have easily went, this is a and d type game. Let's throw in a D20. I am so glad it's 2D10 because then I can do that math, right? I know the average roll is and what the, the odds are of what I'm going to roll, and I do appreciate that. And I got to say, having a combat roll in a dungeon crawling game just makes sense. Though I got to say, it can be frustrated when you're fully leveled up dragon, even though you've got a hand of four Fire Breath cards and you still die because you rolled double ones. Sorry, actually, I have four Fire Breath, wouldn't do it. That actually gives you 20. But let's say you had three Fire Breath cards in a fully leveled up dungeon. So it, it, it there's more there and some people are going to like it and some aren't. Now, this randomness is something else you have to consider when plotting those paths, right? What are the odds the goblins are going to hit? And another thing that I hadn't mentioned yet is remembering what cards your opponent drafted. Do they even have any fire breath cards in their deck to buff those dragons? Were you paying attention or were you too busy drawing walls? It's a little odd to have a game that honestly is all about strategy. It's all about planning ahead. Your first card is going to impact your last turn. Throwing in a random element so prominently in the resolution part of the game it's kind of weird. Like it it feels unbalanced though. It fits the theme
0: again. If you're DMing an RPG and you put all that thought into your dungeon and then these heroes come in with dice to ruin it. (laughs) Though yep. I will say, if you can't mitigate the dice to some degree, that is frustrating. Although it seems like the cards can certainly yes. help you out. Yeah, that's what
1: the cards are for. The cards are really to mitigate that randomness. But then if all you drafted were healing potions for the other player's heroes, you're going to have to be stuck with what you roll. So again, that's a lot going on here. And I think that's clear at this point, right? Like the, There is a lot of depth to Doodle Dungeon. It's called Doodle Dungeon. It's a flipping right. You just don't expect this. There is a lot to think about in every aspect of this game. And that keeps players engaged right from the start. The downfall of all of this, though, is how long it takes. Like, for our group, Doodle Dungeon really skirts the border on overstaying its welcome, at least with the adults we played. Even knowing how long the game's going to be sitting down, the game can feel like it took up more time than you want it to. So we sit down on date night to play this game, and a two-player, it even took us over an hour. While I have considered ways of speeding it up, like changing the icons or telling everyone don't color in, don't draw eyes on your monsters, even just doing that would speed it up, I haven't actually sat down and tried any of these. Now... Where this is a problem is I have a large game collection. Not everyone does, right? When I'm sitting there going, you know what? I'm going to sit down and play a game for an hour and a half. What do I want to spend that time playing? Do I want to play this silly dungeon crawling game? Or am I going to play something with a little more meat to it? Because once you're up to an hour and a half, you can play some pretty heavy games.
0: There's certainly a choice to be made. And the sort of gamer you are and the Mm. feeling or lack thereof from this game is going to weigh heavily, especially If you didn't have a great experience the first time, getting it to the table again may prove difficult.
1: Now, what I will say, and I specifically said the adults in our group, because my kids thought this game was the perfect length. The 14 drafting rounds gave them just enough time to fill their dragon and make it feel complete. And they really enjoyed playing through the resolution phase, the going around. What happened to your guy? What happened to this guy? Everyone was engaged, even though it's other players rolling the dice. And I was most surprised because my youngest stayed engaged the whole time. She's usually the one that wants to drop out after half an hour in most
0: games. And she was perfectly played for this one right to the end. Uh, And for those who might not be regular listeners, your kids both love the artistic aspect of games. So I'm sure the graphical aspect helped keep them in touch.
1: Yes, um, they had very themed dungeons. Uh, my daughter Gwen, every orc was dressed in a different costume, and her, her dungeon was the dungeon costume party. So there was the metal orc and the pirate orc, and yes, that was all part of the game. The biggest one, we we had to implement a house rule. No adding flair to your dungeon unless another player is still drawing. So as soon as everyone's flipped their card down, they're done drawing, you stop adding flare. And then we draw the new cards and we draft, which which I think is probably going to be a common rule. Um, my youngest daughter had a Christmas theme; all of her 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 pit traps were all Christmas trees, and all the walls had lights on them. So yes, that, that my kids did get into that, and yes, I had to enforce the nope, Gwen's done drawing; we're gonna start the next round of cards. Now, overall, Doodle Dungeon is a really engaging highly strategic dungeon crawling game that does a great job of making you feel like a dungeon overlord, a dungeon architect. It's a lot of fun drawing the dungeon as well as determining the hero's path for one of your opponents. That final resolution system is fun to run through and does feel like you're playing a fantasy RPG. It feels like you're playing a series of fantasy RPG combats and falling into traps and all that stuff, especially with the use of the dice. And at the end of the game, I always feel like I I made something. Look, I drew a dungeon, check out my dungeon, and everyone wants to see my dungeon, and I enjoy looking back to see what I did wrong. I also like looking at my opponent's dungeon to see how I could have drawn a better path. My only issue with this game is the length, which is just longer than you would expect and moves this game firmly out of the quick filler game into something longer. And the problem is with something longer, it now has to complete with a plethora of other games.
0: It will be interesting to see if this comes out in a digital version in one form or another uh, to help uh, help that along.
1: I could totally see playing this like like that Guild of Dungeoneering that which we gave away a copy of reminds me of this game. I can totally see click to place walls, dragging things over. Um, honestly, there might be one out there because it wouldn't surprise me because this I think would lend itself to digital very well. One other thing I probably should have noted that it didn't come up is this is four player only, which is actually different for many rolling rights and many flipping rights. You can play any number of players like some are up to like 990 players as long as everyone's got a sheet. But note in this game, because of the size of the deck, you are limited to four players. Exactly. You can play less. You need at least two because the drawing the path thing doesn't work with just playing solo. It is up to four players. You're going to but no more. Right? Like I said, many flip and roll and And this is not one of those games where one card comes up and everyone has to use it. Now, maybe someone wants to come up with a variant rule that might work. But as it stands, two to four players. So if the theme appeals to, if you dig reverse dungeon crawlers, if you like building dungeons and filling them with monsters and traps, I think this game is definitely worth checking out. I am very happy to add it to my collection, my growing reverse dungeon crawl collection. I, mean, I need a shelf of them eventually. Just know that going in, this is not a quick game and it's all about learning and uh, exploiting is possibly the wrong word, but taking advantage of the rule intricacies and using those to your advantage. If you're looking for a fun, silly dungeon romp filled with stabbing your friends in the back and tons of laughs, this isn't the game for you. While the game features a silly theme, silly flavor text, and fantastic John Kovalik art, it's just not the light romp you might expect it to be. Now, where I think this game may have a market is a group that probably wouldn't even give it a look, and that is the medium-weight fans. While the theme and art style suggest this to be an Amerithrash adventure game, that features, it features a lot of strategy, tactics, and difficult player decision points. I think fans may dig this, regardless of its dice-driven combat system and adventure theme.
0: And just a note The designer of this game is actually the same designer as the, from the Minecraft builders and biomes, which is another game, which is another game that is deceptively thinky. Yes. Um, you know, for Minecraft people think of as a kid's game, that game as well had a lot of decision points Mm. in it and was uh, a much beefier game than we had expected initially when we uh, got our hands on it.
1: Totally agree. Review on YouTube and the blog.
0: Well, that's it for our review of Doodle Dungeon. Have you played this one? Let us know what you think about it in the comments. We welco- also welcome you, you to check the more detailed written review over at tabletopbellhop.com. And now the Bellhop's Tabletop, where we look back at the games we played since last episode. All
1: right. So the first one I'm going to mention quickly is I played Doodle Dungeon with the kids. You just heard all about that. So I'm not going to get into details with that one. Only to say I was really surprised by how much they liked it. I was worried that it would be too much. And I was extremely worried about that player length. And I sat down. I'm like, what do you think about length? They're like, no, it was perfect. It was just about right. And like I said, Gwen particularly pointed out, she's like, At "Part way, I thought I was worried my dungeon wouldn't fill up. But by the end, I had plenty of options. And I think if it had gone any longer, I wouldn't have had room to put stuff and it would have been frustrating. And my youngest was like, no, no, that was fun. I would totally play again. And I, I was really worried about like she has fidget toys and stuff to keep her busy but i thought sh- this would be too much for her when we played hero quest the other day by the end of hero quest she was kind of off doing her own thing and 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 not really vibing with the game anymore there i used vibing i wasn't totally intentional it just kind of slipped out um but this one no she was perfectly fine with so that actually my my opinion of the game jumped up significantly after seeing how much fun they had with it. Now, I do still have the same complaint. My kids obviously haven't played as many games as me. How often is this going to come up? You have an hour and a half to play a game. You can pick anything in this room. How often are you going to grab that game? That's that's the part that it, if it's a quick filler, it's different. Let's grab that and play around. You don't get that with this game. This is It has to be a conscious decision to sit down and play Doodle Dungeon for an hour.
0: Though, to be fair, with your kid's love of art, I can see them picking it more often True. because they get to draw.
1: Yes. No, I agree. And maybe they will pick it. Over an hour. Yes. Over <laughs> an hour. Even with two players. Like, that's the surprising one. I thought counting, cutting the player count down. Honestly, to be honest, with four players, it didn't feel any longer. It must have been. Like just the resolution phase must've took longer, but right. All right. Next up, here's the one people may be jumping, jumping in their seats to hear about or not. Kind of depends if you were a fan back in the day or not. I got my copy of hero quest to the table that was my 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 birthday gift that was uh well the game wasn't but like my birthday gift was the entire family sits down and plays hero quest with me so we did that on my birthday night um first off if you are curious what you get in the new box because a lot of it has to do with the look and aesthetic check out our youtube video it's up there now it's proving to be very popular people are definitely checking it out definitely check out our video on youtube um No clue if I'm going to get to the point where I do a formal review on this one, since we did buy it. It was actually a Christmas gift from last year, just how long it came out. So one of the things you'll see on that YouTube video is the first thing I want to talk about. So you've got this giant box, like almost Gloomhaven size box. And it's layered perfectly with sleeves to hold things and everything's well designed. And then the bottom, there's a spacer. And I'm like, okay. And then I'm like, oh, wait. I have the the Hasbro Pulse exclusive um, Mythic tier. So I have bonus content. And I have the two expansions for the game. So this is going to fit those, right? Well, it fits neither. Now, with work, you can get either the Pulse exclusives to fit. And honestly, you can tell it's not designed to do this. But you can get it to work. The way the trays nest, you can just get it to close without being lifted. Or you can put the expansions in. You cannot fit both. It is absolutely not. So I have no idea... Why this, What? why, like they designed the box. Like it's, it was a flipping pulse that raised millions of dollars. How,
0: why is there a spacer? So this was a bizarre choice made here with how things are packed. Just mind boggling. Now, clearly things just didn't line up with the design and the implementation, but I struggle to believe that the best solution was a blank spacer that gives hope, but no actual solutions. And as it is, there isn't even a
1: spot for everything in the box as it is. Once you punch the punch boards, there's nowhere to put them. So, like, if you could just put a tray on the bottom to hold the card, I don't know. Like, like I, I'm baffled. All I can think of is whoever designed the Mythic box. It was supposed to fit there, but it doesn't. I, don't, I, I have no clue. Next, taking everything apart and looking at it. Component quality is good. Uh, it is in all ways better than the original. Now I, in the video I kind of complained that the tiles are thinner than I would like and that stands they, they are not standard board game thickness tiles they are thinner they're like about half the thickness of your standard board game tile but you know what they are way thicker than the original because the original game they were um, like card like card not cardboard what do you call it poster board like the, the, they were thick card they were thick card not cardboard and so they did beat out the original on that. They didn't punch great either, which is kind of annoying, but you know what? To be honest, it's kind of Hasbro quality. Miniatures are great, uh, especially the scenery. Those scenery miniatures are fantastic. Nice, chunky, high detail, keeping the look and feel of the original while still being unique. Great detail on them, but for hobby gamers, be aware this is not a cool mini or not game. This is not Games Workshop. These are board game miniatures that are that board game plastic that very easily gets bent in shipping and is almost impossible to get back to straight. I'm going to have skeletons that constantly have bent spears unless I do something about it. And yes, I know there's some kind of trick out there with boiling water and then freezing it. I, I am not, probably not going to try that. What I will say is they all stood up good, which was nice. Like, like none of them were falling over or anything like that, but like my awesome gargoyle miniature has a sword that kind of bends over his head and that's a little disappointing.
0: This is not a restoration game reprint. And that is very obvious. In
1: more ways than one. Next complaint is the insert. The insert holds these miniatures so tightly that I am worried I'm going to break something every time I pull them out. And now on a positive note, it's that board game plastic. It's it's toy plastic. It's not miniature plastic. So they're not super fragile, but like certain pieces, like the weapons rack, feel like it's going to break every time I pull it out even worse though is if i painted my miniatures i'd want to protect them you don't want to use this tray for your painted miniatures like unless you put in a half inch of varnish on your minis some paint's going to get scraped off for now i'm keeping everything how it is like it does work right but like all the miniatures are in the tray and you got to pop them out and there's no place to put the cardboard counters everything you punch out and which once you add in the mythic stuff and the expansions is quite a bit there's nowhere to put any of that there's just really a spot for the miniatures and there's a spot for the cards but you have to keep all the cards in separate piles for all the separate expansions because there's no spot to hold all the cards just because of the depth like i i'm keeping it but i Possibly gonna go with another solution, which may honestly involve a baggie of orcs, a baggie of skeletons, a baggie of this, because these miniatures should live up to that with maybe some of the nice ones in a different spot. Or I may look into third party solutions, which I'm sure, actually, I'm honestly, I've seen a couple. So there are definitely third party people already selling you box inserts for this. And that's only really a complaint because of the cost of this. Like this, this was not a cheap game to to purchase and you kind of expect everything to be deluxe not just parts of it sadly <laughs> now as for the game we've only played once but i think that's enough to say everything we played four players with Diana and the kids i played zargon uh this plays the same this is hero quest it's everything hero quest was it feels like hero quest the dice work like Real Qu- hero quest the rules are hero quest this is pretty much a direct reprint with most of the rules copied word for word from the American printing of the original, which is different from the UK printing, which means you get everything you
0: loved about HeroQuest along with all of the problems with HeroQuest. It is very much, for better or worse, a photocopy of the original. And as some have indicated, not a good photocopy as new typos have been added that weren't in the original work.
1: I, I don't think it's worth getting to the minutia here. Um, if you're interested, we talked about it a lot on our Discord channel, which you can get access to by becoming a Patreon patron. Any backer level. Give us any money, you can get in there, and you can talk about HeroQuest. Sorry, I don't know if I hit the mute in time. I tried. <clears throat> what I will say here is that the updated rulebook is a odd mess because it's a mess of existing typos... New typos, ambiguous rules, some updated sections that are actually more clear than they've ever been since the eighties, and news and 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 totally miss things. Like I found this really frustrating because some of the rules are fixed by some like the huge ones, like how to share items, isn't like I I would have been happier with I think a direct copy of the original than a half-assed update that doesn't even contain the errata that was published by Milton Bradley in the quest packs. Like, how do you update bits but not others, including the blatantly, obviously, stuff that was addressed back in uh, the early 90s?
0: <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's clear not a lot of thought went into this release. It appears to have been very much a lock down the licenses and get it out the door. Yeah. Almost every single issue we've seen could easily be addressed by giving it to a gamer and asking for their thoughts. I, it feels like this was a product put out by project managers, not gamers or designers.
1: I honestly think what happened here was like, everyone loved hero quest. Hero quest is fine. Let's just publish it. I don't think there was any design work or play testing done with this new edition. And no, I have not even dived into the Pulse content, the, uh, the exclusive content, the add-ons. Based on one errata I found, it seems like the included new adventures are even worse. All right, added to this, lots of love for Hero Quest, right? Games missing cards. So one of the big changes they did from the original game, in the original game, when you went to the armory, that's the shop, that was artwork and text on the box insert for the game. That's why you couldn't throw the box insert out. Well, they scrapped that because, well, the box inserted a plastic tray. Maybe the armory was supposed to be in the bottom. Maybe that's why they left space. I just thought of that. Maybe I can take my original armory out and put it there. But anyway, the armory's gone. It's been relac- replaced by cards. These, there aren't enough. Like, there aren't even enough cards to give the default four heroes, the only ones that come in the base game, their starting equipment. Like, maybe you're like, oh, well, it must be there's just one card for reference. But then there's four shields. So, like like, it doesn't make sense. It makes no sense. Despite all the justification I see from fanboys sharing online and why they did this, none of it is justified. It makes no sense.
0: Yeah, fans are going to fan for better or worse. All
1: right, here's where I turn things around. Here's the 360, and that'd be all the way around. I guess the 180. None of this matters. What matters is the gameplay itself, and this is still a ton of fun from both sides of the screen. While D worried it was just going to be nostalgia, they're like, yeah, I remember it, but we played that years ago. It's not just nostalgia. It's actually fun. We had a great time playing the game. I had a great time being the baddies and the DM and adding in, I'll admit, I, I I added to it, right? I added extra fluff and descriptions and RPG elements. Like, we didn't change the game. But when the thing says you find 15 coins in a boot, I changed it to fit the description of the room they're in. Right? Like, oh, between the shelves of the book, you see a thing and you pull on it and you find some coins, right? Like, that's all I did. I didn't change the game at all. And... My kids had a blast. Like a real... We haven't seen them having this much fun since Scooby-Doo. They loved it. And it's worth noting, they didn't even win. The last character went down after opening the last door to the last room, seeing their objective in front of them, then got pounded by a Chaos Warrior. Sorry, a... I don't even remember what they called them now. They're not Chaos Warriors now. One thing they didn't change, though, that I... That first quest... It's still, I think, the hardest of all of them. This was true in the original edition. I'm like, here's your intro to the game, Quest. Let's make that hard, really hard, and tell everyone they have to work together, and if they don't work together, they'll die. And then everything else, and we haven't played through the new edition, but as far as I can tell, they didn't change the Quest, is easier than this first Quest, which is just a, a bad design, in my opinion. But I gotta say, my kids, even with everyone dying, is totally eager to play again, and I think that's a great sign for the future of Hero Quest with us.
0: And folks, that's why Hasbro can get away with doing this in this way. For all its flaws, it's still a fun game. Yep,
1: and that's it. And and really that's what's most important. Who's gonna be upset are the collectors that bought this. The people who had no intention of introducing it to a new generation, the people who just wanted the old game they used to have with shiny, awesome miniatures and excellent content and a tray that holds everything, that's not this. This is still a Hasbro game. Well, technically, it's Avalon Hill, who's owned by Hasbro. But this is still, it's a mass-market game. You're going to be able to buy this at Walmart and Target. You're going to be able to see this at Toys R Us in Canada. Like, it's its a mass-market game, and you get mass-market quality with mass-market rules. Which, unfortunately, means it's probably not perfect. That may be my only review of HeroQuest. We'll see if we ever dive deeper. Next, underwater cities, part one. This doesn't kill Terraforming Mars. No, not at all. I love Terraforming Mars. It's one of my most played games of all time. And at this point, there's no way it's going to get dethroned by Underwater Cities. But that is not because Underwater Cities is bad or even worse or not as good a game. Actually, it's really good. But it doesn't feel like the same game at all. And to me, it has no way of beating out Terraforming Mars because they're not even in the same race. They're, they're two totally different games. The only thing I see they have in, in common is you end up with a tableau. And it's easy to forget what you have in that tableau, and you're never going to forget to trigger them when the right things happen. But I think that's true of every tableau builder, including Race for the Galaxy or even Gizmos. You forget that one thing that should have triggered when that other thing happened. Now, in underwater cities, you're building underwater biodomes connected to each other through pipes and potentially through the mainland. Along with this, you're also constructing and upgrading three different types of buildings that can be attached to each city. Now, this is all done through a really brilliant combination of worker placement and card play. No, we've been talking about worker placement and card play, but that's this isn't a deck builder. So this is actually nothing like Arnak or Dune. Arnak and Dune are really hot right now and may, combine things in a new way. This is traditional. Uh, card game, right? You're going to draw a hand of three cards from the same deck that everyone shares. On your turn, you're going to play one card and draw a new one to replace it. This is a traditional card game in that way. Now, the brilliant part is that's tied to the worker placement aspects. So the worker placement spots are in three different colors. So are the cards. You only get to use the ability on the cards if you play them when taking the same colored action. And this leads to some fascinating, sometimes agonizing, and often rewarding decision points. Now my only problem with this game at this point is the aesthetic. Rio Grande game seems to be stuck in the 2000s, as far as components and design goes. While this game doesn't feature wooden cubes, it's a very, very small step up from wooden cubes. Though the city domes are kinda cool, but even then they feel like, oh look, we have plastic domes, isn't it awesome? The card art is repetitive, uh, including the same piece of artwork used multiple times, with just parts of it swapped to different colors. That said, the important part, the iconography is spot on, easy to see and clear in what it represents. Gameplay so far is excellent. Uh, very much a point salad. Lots of options. Uh, I appreciate no special two-player rules, though there is a two-player side of the board and a three, two- and three-side player of the board and a four-player side. Um, really, I don't have anything bad to say about our first play, and we're looking forward to exploring it more.
0: Excellent. Well, I think that's a, a solid uh, recommendation so far, at least. Uh- even though it's uh, certainly not going to dethrone the uh, Terraforming Mars crown. It's still going to look, it sounds like a solid enough game. I have a fee-
1: feeling the people who killed it have played Terraforming Mars once or twice. And what they remember about it is I had a big card tableau. I, I don't quite get where the argument comes from. And if you want to at me, feel free. <laughs> Next, Aqualin. Last game, D and I for, for, for t- this week. This is one D got me for my birthday, specifically to play just the two of us. This is a two player cosmos game with some great looking azul quality tiles and a very pasted on underwater theme. So here I'm going to teach you how to play. You can make your own version at home after the show. Start with a six by six grid on the table. Then you need 36 tiles featuring six different sea creatures and six different colors. You at home can use scraps of paper. Shuffle those up face down, flip over six of them. One player is gonna play species, the other is gonna play colors. Starting player picks one face up, puts it anywhere on the board, and then flips up a new tile. Now until all the tiles are played, players now take turns doing three things. First, pick a tile that's already on the board and slide it orthogonally until it hits another tile or the side of the grid. Then put one of the face up tiles onto the board and flip up a new one. Once the board's filled, The player who played Species scores points for connected tiles of the same species. The other player scores points for connected colors. That is it for how to play. Now, the only thing that is a little bit difficult to remember is how scoring works. A set of one is worth nothing. A set of two is worth one. Set of three is worth three. Four is worth six. Five is worth ten. And if you somehow manage to connect all six of a thing, as D did their first game, you get 15 points. That's it. You can now go play Aqualine yourselves.
0: Uh, so a great uh, on-the-road coffee shop game to be certain.
1: Yeah, exactly. This is it, it's a simple game. Components are effective. It's got way more depth than you think from this quick teach. Like that sounds simple, but just wait till someone starts moving those around on you and trying to block and all that. Uh, well, it's see, I seem to be terrible at it. With uh, Deanna almost doubling my score on both games we played, I did enjoy it. And again, what Sean just mentioned is where I think this is going to be perfect. This is going to be a great one for bringing out the pubs and cafes, enjoying with a drink, whether that's coffee or something else. Um, This is going to join groups like group of games like the Duke, Onitama and Patchwork for me. Games we tend to pack when we're going on vacations or games we leave in the van. Now, even better, what I noticed yesterday, someone sharing a picture of, uh, of the game being played with homemade tiles was they were playing it on the Duke board, which I totally forgot Duke was six by six. So really now we only need to bring one board and I'll admit I'm tempted to like get a custom mouse pad printed up or something neoprene, or even just something on a piece of cloth the can throw in her bag with a six by six grid on it. And that way we, all we got to do is grab the tiles in another bag and we're good to go.
0: Take note, mouse pad manufacturers. <laughs> All right. Well, how about a look ahead? What do you have planned for the coming weeks? Uh, nothing set in stone. Uh, we're still have
1: gathering restrictions here in Ontario, though they may go away in two weeks. I uh, don't know if that's a good choice or not. Uh, so it's, we're stuck just gaming stuck. Stuck's the wrong word. We will only be gaming with the immediate family or online. Um, we still have to finish a game at Arnak on board game arena. That's taken forever, but that's just, we need to sit down and just finish that one. Um, As for playing games, kids want to play more Hero Quest, so I would like to do that. Deanna and I need to play some more Arnak in person, need to discover some more underwater cities. What I really want to do is I'm watching my pile of shame shrink this year. It's actually gone down a significant amount. I'm under 100 already. So I'm really itching to just, like, hammer through some, just to give the games one try. The stuff I don't think I'll love. Like stuff I got from closeout sales, stuff I brought back from my parents' house. Do the one play and decide keep it or not. Like, is it worth investigating more? So that's something I want to focus on. As for the pile of obligation, we will be talking about Quetzal probably next week. And I may even review the wolf puzzle that we showed off Um when did we show that? At the end last of week? last episode? Yeah.
0: End of last episode.
1: End of last episode. So in the after show last episode, we showed that off. Uh, assuming that Deanna can get together with uh, Gwen and sit down and build it, we'll get some pictures up. I, I, I'm thinking maybe hammer both of those out in one quick review and get them done. I do want to review Quezzle. So one of the things we talked about was uh, whether we're going to give a formal review on the blog on that or not. It was not part of the obligation to do this. But I have now gotten two more emails from people thanking me to tell them they haven't finished it yet. So I think that review needs to go out there and yes, Quezzle, Unidragon should be doing this, <laughs> but like, let people know the end puzzle. The, the four things you have that you build out of 3D have clues on them. Put the words of those four things in the right order and realize there's more to the game. And yes, you may think you're brilliant that you like gathered all the butterflies and made something. Well, the game will tell you to do that if you follow the right progression. You didn't have to take that leap of faith. So I think that's what we're going to talk about next week. Um, I can't speak for Deanna to see if they'll get it in, but if if they can get the puzzle done, that's even better. If not, we'll do it next time. Um, I have some unboxings to do, but I think I'm going to hold off because none of them are obligations. We'll probably save that. What I'm really hoping will show up, though, is the op is supposed to be sending us some games. So I want to be able to talk about the Goonies Coded Chronicles game, which might involve sitting down with the kids to watch the movie first. <laughs> so I don't know. We're, we're doing stuff
0: and playing games. All right. Now a quick shout out and a thank you to some of our VIP guests, our Patreon backers. We greatly appreciate their support. Sean P. Kelly of the excellent gaming and BS podcast. Thank you. Andrew Dacey. Thank you, Andrew. Brian Van Beek. Not the same Brian whose question we answered today, but just as appreciated. Diane Tuzano. Thanks, Ma. And the Misdirected Mark podcast, talking gaming and game mastering right here on Twitch on Tuesdays. Well, that was the double bell. That means my shift's coming to an end and we're going to have to lock
1: those front doors.
0: Though the doors to the lobby are closed, you can always find us all over the web as Tabletop Bellhop, one word. You can visit our website at tabletopbellhop.com, find our podcast on your podcatcher of choice, and sign up for our newsletter at newsletter.tabletopbellhop.com for weekly updates. As always, links down below.
1: If you like the content we're providing and would like to support our continued efforts, or you just want some cool free stuff, consider tipping your bellhops at patreon.com slash tabletopbellhop.
0: Well, that wraps up the time we have for the show tonight. For the lobbyists, thanks for joining us and be sure to stick around and join us in the penthouse suite for the after show and stop by Sundays for brunch. For Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, I'm Sean. And I'm Mo. Thank you. And game game on. Find full reviews, show notes, and more at tabletopbellhop.com. Graphic design by Brian Weiss at RPG & Co. Music is Nimbus by Eveningland. The podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution license.